So, hi everyone, welcome to Decolonizing Online's talk on the legacies of slavery in Britain to Christy Warren. Um, and if you haven't heard of us before, we're like a student-led society that tries to challenge modes of white supremacy and colonialism that still exist today by organising discussions and giving platforms to people just like this one today. So the legacies of British slave ownership project at UCL is a very significant and unprecedented historical investigation of both the scale and the impact of slave ownership and slave owners in British society. Um, into the modern era. So whilst there is a common concern that slavery is too often centred on the general history, which is told of those communities who have descended from slaves, like in the UK, um, the impact of slave ownership on the formation of modern British society has not yet been fully developed and explored. So the research which is carried out at UCL, uh, which continues to develop, is part of a wider work that's being done by many others to rebalance the British national narrative around slavery by reinserting it into the national narrative and the legacies of it. So Christy Warren um, is a research associate on the project, and she joins us today to give us an insight into the processes of the project, um, its significance, its continuation into the future with its um, outreach program with young people, um, and the political and historical significance of British colonial slavery and uncovering the scale and depth, which is only really fully considered now. So Christy completed her PhD at the University of Warwick in 2012. Her thesis investigates the extent to which the positions taken by Bermudian um, politicians and social commentators concerning the question of independence in the British overseas territory um, are informed by their lived experiences and understandings of the island's past. So prior to her PhD, she worked at the National Archives in Kew on a heritage lottery-funded catalogue and an outreach programme entitled Your Caribbean Heritage. So please give a warm welcome. Good evening. I'd like to thank the Society um, for inviting me here tonight. And I'm going to spend the next 40 or so minutes giving you some information about the project. It's a six-year project that has involved work of eight core people, um, over a dozen associates. So there's a lot to think about and cover. And hopefully this will be a balance between kind of in-depth but also an overview. So if we don't get to everything, it's not because it's not important, it's, it's not time. And we'll have time to talk afterwards. So, let's see. We talked about the overview already. As noticed in the introduction, this talk will explore some of the outcomes of the first part of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, give some insights into the work presently being undertaken by the LBS team in the second phase, and describe outreach conducted with young people in Hackney. Throughout, it's also consider, it also considers the project's aims to reinsert slavery into the British national narrative. The Legacies of British Slave Ownership project is made up of two distinct yet connected projects. The first part ran from 2009 to 2012 and drew on the PhD work of Nicholas Draper, which was later published as a monograph called The Price of Emancipation, Slave Ownership, Compensation, and British Society at the End of Slavery. Dr. Draper's thesis used the records of the Compensation Commission, which was set up in the 1830s to distribute the 20 million pounds allocated by the British government to 47,000 individuals who claimed compensation for what they considered their property in enslaved people of African descent. So what happened on the first part of the project was that the initial research was collated and put into a database that was made publicly available at the end, in 2013. Um, I'm hoping everything works today. <coughs> I think I already have it, actually. So this is the database. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. What we find in the database is um, entrants include their name, whether or not their claim was successful, the number of enslaved people for which they claim compensation, the value placed on the lives of the enslaved, which varied from colony to colony and job to job. Sometimes the records also provide an address where the person who made the claim lived. Using this information, it was possible to discover that about 300 Sorry, 3,500 of those who made successful claims were based in Britain. These absentee owners claimed between 40 and 50% of the compensation. <coughs> Thus, between 8 and 9 million pounds remained in Britain and Ireland. This wealth was used to negotiate influence and power in government and business, 
to shape the image and status of individuals and families through the building of houses, philanthropic acts, and the collection of material goods such as art. These people are remembered, but they're not remembered as slave owners. They're called uh, West India men, uh, philanthropists, and the source of their money has often been ignored. They also use their influence and claims of first-hand knowledge to attempt to shape ideas of slavery and race in the metropole. The data base also reveals that over 40% of the claimants were women, most of whom lived in the colonies. About a quarter of absentees were women, though, which is a significant number if you consider the property laws at the time, which stated that once a woman married, all of her property became her husband's. Um, and really well, people got around that sometimes through trust, so putting the money in trust for the woman. On both sides of the Atlantic, women were mostly small claimants. However, women also played key roles in the transfer of some larger estates from one generation to the next as daughters, sisters, and widows of estate owners who left them property. What, were then, what was then known as people of color, the term used for people of mixed African and European descent, also owned property to a lesser extent. Mostly this property would have claimed come from their fathers. It is through absentee owners that the team was able to trace the commercial, <coughs> let's look at the late, if you see there, the commercial, cultural, historical, imperial, physical, and political legacies of slave ownership within British society. <coughs> the database also allows you to trace the connections had between individuals, and it's through this work that networks of family, kinship, and business are often, often invisible at the level of the claimant can be found. For while some claims were linked to several individuals who, although as strange as it may sound, owned shares in groups of enslaved people, digging into the claim notes can often provide information on other forms of joint ownership. Um, so that page you can search by individual, but we're gonna go to the next page, which is the advanced search. How many of you have been on the website before? So a few, so you've tried this out. <coughs> so that was about half, so I'll go through this anyway. <coughs> you see a return like this, you have a return for the Maps Estate in Barbados. You can see Charlotte Adam Allen, who made claims along with her bro sisters, brothers, and parents. It can also be seen that there's another claim for the same estate made by Reverend Richard Smith, which shows that he had jointly owned the estate along with Charlotte's father, Robert Allen. Smith received half the compensation for the enslaved people who lived on the estate at the time of emancipation, with the family dividing the other half. One firm that makes claims is Thomas Daniel and Son, and that's another invisible um, kind of entity. You don't find the claim immediately if you search because it's done by individual. But if we put in um, John Daniel, <coughs> oops, did I spell it wrong? No, I spelled it right. Oh, I know why. <laughs> Here's a lesson in problems with databases. If you leave a field <laughs> filled in, you're going to come up with no results. I've done that many, many times. Sorry. So we have John Daniel here. And as you can see, he makes claims, 35 claims across the Caribbean. You can see Barbados, British Guiana, Montserrat, Nevis, Tobago. If you click through, You'll see on the side there's something called legacy summaries, and there's one commercial legacy summary, which shows that he was a partner in a company called Thomas Daniel & Co., along with his brother, Thomas Daniel. His brother also made separate claims, 38 of them, and they traded through Bristol and London. 
The entry provided for Thomas notes that between them, the brothers are said to have acquired not much less than a quarter of a million of the 20 voted for compensation. This mixture of business and family is found throughout the claims, both in structured forms such as this company and looser ownership patterns formed by individual purchases and bequests through wills. So, as I'm guessing you are familiar with some of the outcomes of the first part of the project, some of you have seen the BBC program that we, um, that was aired, that we worked on with David also. Um, some of the other things that have happened though kind of go both ways, so we both had information from family and local historians and also family and local historians have used the database um, in different ways. So we're talking about the descendants of both slave owners and the enslaved. Um, there's one person who wrote a, a blog for us, we have a blog on the website as well, concerning her enslaved ancestors in Carrot, and I never pronounced that island, so right, um, in the West Indies. Um, and she was able to make the connections using our database and also other sources. It's very important that this, doesn't, this, this resource doesn't stand alone. It must be used in conjunction with other things to build a picture. I'll talk a bit more about that. But one of the things I wanted to show you, which you may not have seen, and something that we're going to be building on um, and expanding this time, is mapping. I'll talk a bit later. If I forget, you can ask me about it, um, about the mapping we'll do in the second part of the project. <coughs> But the mapping that we have so far, um, one of the first maps was the Fitzrovia map, which actually deals with this area of London that we're in right now. Sorry about this. While that's loading, I'll talk about um, one of the other things that we've done and some work conducted by Chris Jefferson and Margot Finn, also at UCL, have used the database to explore the linkages between the East India Company and the Caribbean. So what we find is that families are often located in both places, sometimes sending a second son one place, another son somewhere else, but also as it becomes apparent that the Caribbean parts of the Caribbean, some of them parts remain quite profitable, is becoming less profitable, they move over, their interests over to the East India Company. So you can see the movement of people, not just between Britain and the Caribbean, but throughout the empire. They also move up um, into Canada, into the US as well. So you see other types of connections. But I think you should recognize where the map is at the moment. <coughs> and if we, where are we? Here we are. So that's where we are, yeah? If we click on one of these, it will give us some information about the person who lived there, how much money he received, and the kinds of business that he was involved in. So once again, these people came, the, a lot of the people that were able to map are absentees, so they often came from prominent families, but not always. Um, and they've not been forgotten as people, but they have been forgotten as slave owners. So on to the second part of the project. Um, so, in, sorry. During presentations of the research conducted during the first part of the project, workshop participants consistently asked for more research to be conducted on the years before abolition. In addition to this request, what was research revealed? A couple of things. Firstly, that a good proportion of those claiming compensation were the mortgagees, trustees, and executors of indebted, young, and deceased owners meaning that the name of the owner is often buried in the claim notes. And secondly, that a great number of individuals and families who have been involved in the ownership of enslaved people over several generations sold their property and land and people in the decades before abolition, meaning that their names are not found in the compensation records at all. These three points help to direct the decision made concerning the second phase of the project. Um, and that is the structure and significance of slave ownership between 1763 and 1833. This phase of the project began in January 2013 and will end this December. And it concerns investigating the management and transfer of approximately 
8,000 estates discovered so far, so far. Importantly, this number represents those estates which have been identified and are not limited to agricultural estates. For instance, so far about 1,500 estates have been identified in Barbados. Of this number, 400 have been identified as sugar plantations. So estate is um, it's a loosely defined word. It has lots of different meanings. One of them is, um, if you look in the slave registers themselves, can mean the, the property of someone who's died. But it can also mean someone just someone's property. Um, this picture isn't very clear, so let's see if we can get through to the other one. Sorry. So the key documents being used in this phase are the slave registers of the various colonies to extract information about slave ownership. The information given about ownership is varied and can include the name of the owner, attorney, manager, trustee or executor or executrix, guardian or mortgagee or a combination of people connected to the estates. Sometimes, especially in the case of plantations, the name of the estate is given either alone or along with the name of the owner. These sources can therefore provide a wealth of knowledge about both enslaved people, who I'll talk about in more detail a bit later on, and slave owners. As you might imagine, the volume of the records to be investigated is large. Most colonies had triannual returns, starting in 1817 and ending in 1834. Some started earlier, so Trinidad was the earliest, and some only ended up with one. Uh, like what was then known as British Honduras in 1834. However, most colonies had at least five years' worth of registers, with each year having hundreds of returns made by owners and their representatives. We're, we're using the um, registers primarily to gain information of all the states in the region, whether they were owned by absentees or local planters. This includes tracing ownership back in time, using other records, with the available records lending themselves to the exploration of absentees who also held property in Britain. In addition to the registers, documents held in here in the UK include wills, many of them which were approved by the Court of Chancery, maps which list owners, and encumbered estate records. The key records found across the Caribbean are the deed books, which include land sales, mortgage, mortgages, and powers of attorney, along with the sale and manumission of enslaved people. The deed books have not been used extensively in this project due to the amount of time gathering information from them takes, but the pre preliminary research conducted shows that they are a rich source of information. For Jamaica, there are also almanacs and crop accounts, which are held at the Island Record Office. The crop accounts, which were kept from the mid-18th to the early 20th century, include information about, and I quote, all the rents, issues, and profits, proceeds, and produce of estates. The accounts were prepared in accordance with an act for preventing frauds and breaches of trust by attorneys or agents, a persons absent from the island by the trustees, guardians, executors, administrators acting on behalf of minors and others. So the key um, group of people that you find in those records then are the absentees, but you also find minors and women. Those, those are, are the types of individuals that would have someone else representing them um, in public spaces. In addition to the systematic primary search, Catherine Hall is researching the writings of slave owners and how, these, um, how they shaped ideas held concerning slavery and enslaved people um, by those living in Britain. This builds on the work conducted during the first part of the project concerning how slave owners and their descendants helped to reconfigure race after slavery ended. <coughs> Case studies are also being conducted by PhD candidates James Dawkins and Hannah Young. Hannah's work explores the relationship between gender, property, and power in the context of British slave ownership in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. She's using the records of the Compensation Commis Commission to analyze female involvement, both invisible and visible, in absentee ownership. She's also analyzing literary representations of absentee slave owners, focusing particularly on how these representations were gendered. This involves thinking about masculinity as well as femininity. Jane's research focuses on the Dawkins family, who settled in Jamaica in the late 17th century. By the 1700s, they owned approximately 25 acres of land, which was worked by a labor force of 1,400 enslaved people. 
He shows how the wealth they gained allowed them to return to the metropole where they established a family seat. They also used the money to procure parliamentary seats where they defended their colonial interests by voting against the abolition of the slave trade. The Dawkins claimed almost 60,000 pounds in compensation in exchange for the liberation of 3,237 enslaved people. The family continued to possess and indeed expand its Jamaica holdings until the early 1900s when they began to sell off their estates, the last one being sold in 1920. So the new part of the database that's currently under development concerns the period, as I mentioned before, between 16, 1763 and 1833, and it's using this state as a unit of analysis. As you can see from this entry of the Montpelier estate, information gained from the slave returns and other sources is entered into what we've labeled estate evolutions. The details recorded include the names given to the estate in the records, and this can vary from year to year. Estate names changed often, but they also had kind of colloquial local names and then more formal names. So which one shows up in the records um, alters. Um, the names of the owners and other people associated with the estate, such as managers, attorneys, and trustees, and the number of enslaved people attached to the estate. Other information, such as the kind of crop grown, kinds or numbers of animals kept, and the size of the plantation, is also entered where found. Such information is not usually found in the slave registers, but can be found in deeds, court records, and in the case of Jamaica, the almanacs and crop accounts. The way an entry might look um, when we're finished, as you can see, this is just a range from 1817 to 1834. So in Jamaica, it's been possible so far to go back a bit further because the, the records for Jamaica are so much more extensive than other islands. Um, as far as top-level records go. And you can see here that the, from the evolutions, we then create new entries for individuals that we're finding. So as I noted before, not all of these people will be in the original compensation records, so we're adding people. And they'll be given, we'll put in the same kinds of information as we did for the people that are already on the website. So their biographies, how they link to each other, either through kinship or commercial networks, and how they use their wealth, if that can be, can be traced. In addition to historical information, where possible, we're also trying to learn how the estates are used today. As most estates have been broken up into smaller plots of land, the remaining former grand houses, as they were called, most often sit on small plots of land. So rather than, say, for instance, Stony Grove, which was over 300 acres, the main house is on about four acres. But as you can see, it, it's going for about 1.8 million. US dollars. Um, it's being marketed as an historical project. And this idea of erasure kind of continues through other spaces. You have a lot of hotels throughout the region that are former plantations, some of which acknowledge the links between the property and slavery, such as the Firefly Plantation in Beckway, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. While others, such as the Montpelier um, Plantation, the one that I just showed you in the database, airbrushes over this past on their website. So it goes all the way back to 1687, but it, um, it doesn't mention slavery. So although the project focuses on slave owners, it's understood that any project about slavery cannot and should not ignore the enslaved. Research conducted by team members concerning the, the enslaved has taken the form of case studies, which will help others to see how these records can be used along with other sources to learn more about the system of slavery found in the British West Indies, as well as those who have to endure it. For instance, James's thesis on the Dawkins family includes investigation of the lives of the enslaved on the various plantations. In particular, the relationship between labor and its allocation upon the basis of age, gender, health status, and the location of the enslaved person's birth, i.e. either in Africa or in colonies. And I am conducting a case study concerning the labor of enslaved children on plantations in St. Kitts, considering the correlation between age and labor, and also gender and labor, but also trying to 
build up using other sources to think about the worlds that these children inhabited towards the end of slavery. As previously noted, we are systematically collecting information about the number of enslaved people attached to states and how this changes over time. But these case studies will show that the slave registers give us much more information than this. The use of the slave registers was established throughout the British Caribbean from the early 19th century to try and ensure that planters were adhering to the law passed in 1807, which made the so-called slave trade illegal in the British Empire. Though, of course, this did not stop British individuals and companies from being involved in both direct and indirect ways in the continued capture and sale of Africans to other European powers. These returns provided census of the enslaved people. At least one full census per colony was followed by returns showing increase and decrease, whether through birth, purchase, death, or sale, grouped by states or owners. And the reason um, I actually have this, I was looking for pictures I could use that weren't taken from any, by anyone else for copyright reasons, so sorry that my pictures are a bit blurry. It's kind of things I do when I'm in the archive and I see something and I rem remember it for later. This one I took because there's an enslaved boy on the list with the same name as my brother, and he has quite a unique name, Cranston, so it's not one that's gonna kind of pop up in every list. And um, yeah, it's those type of moments that, um, when it kind of hits home. One limitation is that they form an incomplete set of data, which presents a challenge when trying to make comparisons across the region <coughs> and over time. The variations between registration <coughs> systems followed on each island occurred for two main reasons. Firstly, because the registers were, for the most part, created by individual colonial assemblies and councils. And secondly, there were differences in the way individuals presented their information for registration. This means, for instance, some registers use the phrase owner or possessor, and thus do not clearly delineate ownership. Thus, the concerns of local government and planters shape what information we receive both about slave owners and the enslaved. The slave registers also allow us to know when land and people change hands, either through sale, bequest, forfeit, <coughs> due to non-payment of mortgages or other debts, which means we can track the movement of individual and enslaved people as well as groups of people. And of course, on the scale of this project, it's more um, um, anecdotal that we're putting it in as we find it for others to then kind of follow those trails. Um, this is kind of the other side, so the, the page is kind of flipped open like this, and so this is the other side of what I just showed you. And it shows you, um, this first column is an increase column, and this is a decrease column. And the thing that struck me first when I started looking at these books is they just look like accounting books. Um, and they're, they have marks like accounting books. So the first line, sorry again that it's not very clear, it says sale to Trinidad for, um, sent to Trinidad for sale. And that often happened when someone was felt to be getting out of line. Trinidad was the place to send people you didn't want to deal with anymore. So that happens with two people. D.O. D.O. means the same. And then you have by sale to nanny dealing. Um, and then a list of people who have died. The bottom two are increased, and both of these have been bought at something called Marshall's sale. As the contents for most slave registers have been digitized by Ancestry.co.uk, and are available for free, although it's kind of tricky sometimes to figure it out, but you can get to them. It will be possible to make associations with information concerning enslaved people found in the registers, which are available on that site, with information we've sourced about slave owners. Additionally, we're including information about enslaved people provided in wills, both those who are being passed on as a form of property, as well as those who are left, left assets or manumitted. Information found in other sources um, such as lists of enslaved people from earlier um, records. So before 1817, we don't have any systematic recording of enslaved people throughout the Caribbean. It's ad hoc. You need to start going into personal papers, particularly inventories. If you look at inventories, um, some of, a few of them we've printed out as um, made into PDFs as, as examples, um, which show the names in, of enslaved people, the work they did, their ages, and often what value has been placed on their lives. Um, so, the connections between people of African descent, slave owners, and abolitionists were explored in a collaborative outreach project conducted along with Hackney Museum and Archives last autumn entitled Local Roots, Global Roots. The project explored the local links of that London of um, that London borough to the global networks of the slavery business. 
while also investigating wider historiographical issues about what we have come to know about the past and why. We received funding from Shear Academy, which was in turn funded by the Arts Council, to create a teaching resource, which um, could also be used by educators in the classroom and museums and beyond, which is available on the Local Roots Global Roots website. The process of creating the resource involves primary research conducted by Mike Watson, who's here with us today, in the Hackney Archive, as well as searches of other repositories holding papers of individuals with connections to Hackney. Evidence of the presence of people of African descent, slave owners, and sugar factors was found in the Boroughs Archive through documents such as marriage settlement, a house deed, and a petition. The papers of Joseph Jackson Fuller, who wrote of his memory of the ending of slavery in Jamaica, were also sourced from another repository. The project involved liaising with, the, with community consultants and teachers who gave advice concerning how best to package the information. And while we were doing this, we thought, um, while we're doing this, we might as well get into the classroom with it now. Um, so we got some more money from the Arts Council. Kate Donington and I, along with two creative practitioners, Anthony and Exegaru and Akala, and the students' teachers, Catherine Gayton and Lucy Capes. With, together, we conducted um, six-week workshops with secondary students, secondary school students in two Hackney schools. With each group, we had sessions on histor historiography, so how were, how were people of African descent written out of history? How, were there, how, were, how was the countenance longer history ignored um, to justify the exploitation of millions of people? Built heritage, how have slave owners um, and, uh, and their families been remembered in built heritage, showing street names, in building names, and also even in something seemingly as mundane as position of their tombstones, which are often closer to the church and larger, and often speak of their exploits throughout, not just, um, not just with slavery, but with wider colonialism. These were followed by three sessions with the creative practitioners. Anthony worked along with the younger students at Our Lady's Convent High School to respond to the historical information through poetry. And Akala held sessions with students from Hackney B6 on Africa before European contact, contact and the Haitian Revolution, providing um, prospect, perspectives outside of the British context. The skit performed by the B6 students at an event held at the Bloomsbury Theatre speaks to one of the main aims of the society running the event tonight which is to look at ways young people of color can deconstruct some of the socialized norms which we've inherited in the 21st century Britain. In this skit, a teacher controls what her students learn about Africa, focusing on the greatness of the British Empire. The students push back with the history from the bottom, showing that there's another way to see the past, and also thus another way to also see ourselves. Um, by reinserting agency in the past, we can empower young people to practice their own agency in the present. And I'm hoping this will work. Um, if we're talking about agency, we should let people speak for themselves. So this is Sophia. This is part of a longer kind of reflection that the students did that will be used in a presentation we're doing in a couple weeks in Scotland um, on, the on the idea of um, reparative histories. This project was, for me, mental operation. It repaired me mentally.
why we're watching that program and the school. So we're going to have like a 30 to 45 minute Q&A and uh, we're going to do it in a batch of three. So um, if you could keep it brief and um, a question. So has anyone got a question? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, what are the main misconceptions you found that uh, young people studying slavery have when you first encountered it? about hotels and these commercial businesses not mentioning slavery and erasing it. Is there something you're aiming to happen or you want to see happening, such as memorials or say, them being more open about what happened? Will there be any more episodes of the programme? Um, one of the biggest things, I think, which um, Sophia highlights is that slavery is all that there is. Um, this project, of course, is about slavery and slave ownership. But one of the things that we feel is vital as well, that um, the history of people of African descent isn't just about slavery. Also, importantly, when you come down to slavery itself, there's a conflation between the slave trade and slavery more widely. So when you're getting a lesson that the slave trade ends in 1807, people... Um, think that that's when slavery ended as well. There's also a problem with the way in which enslaved people represented, represented sorry, as objects rather than subjects. So they're passive kind of uh, things <laughs> that have no agency. So the idea is that they're being dehumanized all over again. Their agency isn't explored. So we're talking about, um, one of the things that comes up after they learn about the Haitian Revolution is that none of them had, lear had learned about it had never heard about it before. So the idea that um, people actually did stand up for themselves, and also people did it in, in many different ways. Um, and some of the ways that people did this was fighting to hold into their culture, to their religion, to their names. Um, so I think those are probably three main things. Hotels. Um, hmm. I, 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 an acknowledgement would be a start. I, I wouldn't getting to tell someone else what they, they need to do unless they came to ask me, but an acknowledgement would be a start. There are hotels across the region that are acknowledging it, um, the, input, the input of enslaved people. When, but that's for people in the Caribbean to decide for themselves. Um, but I guess the idea is to highlight the idea that these places are connected with this past so that people can then decide what to do with that information. Um, more episodes of the program. Not to my knowledge, that was coordinated by the BBC. That's not something that we did. They came to us and they really worked well along with us. Um, I know that they were happy with its outcome, so who knows. Uh, you mentioned that 30 or 40% of the reparation money stayed in the UK. I'm guessing that means that most of the rest went to Slipholders within the Caribbean. Have you guys done any work? Are you going to do any work on what those people do with the money? Just thinking about now, I, in my opinion, I feel that a lot of black people have almost accepted slavery in the sense that we've, we've come to conform with this society. And we don't seem to really, as black people, I don't feel like we really have an identity. And I'm just wondering how how this will be used to teach us going forward and how we can use it practically. So uh, I may have missed this in the beginning, sorry for my late arrival, but um, from your research, is there any connection between the state of slavery in particular islands or locations and post-colonial success, how you define success? Um, yes, the rest of it went to the Caribbean. Um, claims were also made in the Cape and Mauritius, so some went there. This project is not going to be able to do it. As I noted during the talk, it finishes in December, and the focus is on um, the Caribbean. However, people are using our, the work. It's publicly available. All this information is, public, is a public source. And once this part finishes, it will go live in 2016, and that will be able to be used by anyone in the world. We have people signing in all the time. So um, the short answer is no, we won't be doing it, but the information will be there to do the work. As I noted, we're not just, in this section, we're not just collecting information about absentees. We're collecting as much information as we can, and then we'll dive deeper into the kind of case studies that we wish to follow. But that information will be there um, to build on. Um, yeah. 
sorry, the next question. Okay, uh, accepted slavery, lack of identity, used practically. Um, I guess the, the way, there's lots of different ways that people have used it. Some people think of it quite narrowly as kind of a fat way to um, explore their own family history and try and make connections. I'm writing something at the moment about that because it can be really tricky once your family tree runs out. What do you do with your identity then? I kind of imagine my family kind of running into the sea and trying to reformat ideas of what family means as part of that for me, that any of these people could be my ancestors. Um, so studying them is studying me. Um, and also with the work that we do with the students, it's not just about the content, it's about what this content says about how history has been framed previously. So it's not just saying learn these, this information that we have, it's saying, hey, this is how people write history. They have ideas about the world and those ideas about the world filter into what they write and it helps to decide what they include and what they exclude. And when you tell students that, when, when you tell um, secondary students that, people, I've heard someone say, oh, they can't handle it. They can't handle it. Um, they can handle it. Um, that this is, this is how these things work and um, that we've actually lost a big chunk of humanity by doing this. Um, that's how we approach approaching it with the school students, to think about it not just as what happened, but how what happened was framed and contextualized. Um, state of slavery. Um, no, I did not talk about that. And part of the reason is this project is focused on, this project is focused on the legacies of British slave ownership in Britain. So the idea of the state of slavery and connecting it to post-colonial societies um, would be another project. However, I am from an island. <laughs> um, and I would say, not just slavery, but continued association with Britain through colonialism has made a difference. So those islands that have remained connected have often appeared, and I'll say appeared because um, GDPs can be misleading, um, wealthier and more stable. However, that's not always the case. Um, so the short answer is I don't know the answer, but I, I think it's an important question. So my question is, will your work, or is it already being used in the demand for reparations? Because I think the figures, use, sorry, use my the demand that's being made now for reparations, oh. especially by many of the Caribbean states, mm -hmm. because I think the, the figures show the compensation that many of the stakeholders receive um, to provide a little bit um, first, thanks for, thanks for explaining what today was all about and laying it back to the TV programme. Um, my interest in this particular moment in time is more based on looking at how you use this tool in conjunction with schools and using it as a tool to um, focus the minds of not only the people that are teaching in the schools, because you have a day or two days in a four-year course as a trainee teacher in regards to what you do as history, but more importantly, for me personally, is the fact that it could be used as a tool for uh, the term people of colour to actually accept by going through their history that they actually come from Africa, which then dispels the you're an African, I'm a Caribbean. You're an African, you're a Caribbean. I'm from Britain, which is more damaging, um, personally, for working with young people, to how evolvement, how we evolve as, as people in the first instance. So my, basically my question is, is there any way to actually use it where Africa could be seen as something positive rather than something negative? Um, and that's not just, not just for children talk about parents as well, because once you become embellished in a society, you then go towards their ways. Uh, I'm a Brazilian professor, and I was very emotional with you uh, speaking. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I think lots of uh, parts touch uh, us absolutely, because we have, I, I deal, I research on the pain and subject, and I have, uh, I have uh, found a, a document of uh, selling one seven of a woman in Brazil, 
so we, we see this kind of violence in the papers and documents. And you, you show this, this, this past that it seems to be coming up, but we have to go and struggle because it's something very uh, deep in the culture. Well, you know about, of course. And I would like to know if you have, if you thought about uh, crossing some oral experience with numbers and and uh, datas that you have uh, seen in your in the records, and also how uh, the uh, uh, the books, the, the pedagogic, the history books for children in, in England deal with this kind of situation as it seems to be something so new and it's not new. And, and how, how, for me, I, I was just coming and I, I saw in BBC and I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. but, but you have a very a, 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 a treasure to, to go into, into and, and to do this kind of experience, as you said, with the secondary uh, students, which is moving and absolutely important to change the culture, to decolonize actually our minds. I'm sorry. I'm not, my English is not very good. I have to speak something, I'm sorry. Okay, work corporations. Yes, it is being used. There's a book called Britain's Black Death by Hilary Beckles um, that draws on the information in the database um, quite heavily. Also, um, so that's, I think that's the, the main way that it's been used. So it is being, and he's part of the Paracom Commission. So, and he's on our advisory board. Yeah, he's still on our advisory board, along with um, Vern Shepherd, Green Shepherd, sorry. Um, so yes, there is um, communication. Um, tools with schools about Africa. But yet, that's something that came up for me more stridently when we started working with the students. Because of course, this is about slavery. So how do you teach positive African history through slavery? And there's only one way to include African history before slavery. Um, it was also interesting because in in the um, in the school that we were in, most of the students were um, from Africa, different African nations, and they brought up the issue about the conflict between Afro-Caribbeans and Africans. And I do think this work is very important when you think about the people that were fighting in the Caribbean were born in Africa. <laughs> These were these were Africans, so that connection is is definitely there. So that's one of the things when you, when you highlighted these people, tracking back the history of who these people were. When you look in the slave registers as late as you know the 1830s, it tells you where someone's born: Africa, Africa, Africa. It's not always just Creole, so that link is still there. So it is kind of unpicking this history as part of it. But I really think that what we're doing is part of um, something much bigger that needs to be done. It can't just be about. It has to be about. That's why it was important to bring in a creative practitioner, to bring in someone like Apollo who could speak, uh, and he's amazing, kind of eloquently and effectively about these topics. Yeah, um, yeah, the work. It is, it is, it is quite heartbreaking for someone like me, who's um, my dad was an oversensitive. <laughs> it, it is sometimes quite difficult to think about, um, and then also to hear how it's dismissed because people don't. Either they don't understand or they don't want to understand how how horrible it was. I mean, when you it goes down to the level of um, seeing family owning family to protect them. When you think about a, a system that's that insidious, where you would own your own child to protect him, and seeing a manumission from a mother to a son, my 14 year old son, I liberate you because of the love I have for you. You know, that's that's really messed up, um, and it's something that is it's not new. And I think it's, um, I don't know, I think I may have mentioned it quickly at the beginning, but part of the problem is that um, slavery is often taught through an abolitionist lens. So in earlier part of, of that video, what I think it was Sophia again said, you know, we were, we were taught that they were brought out of Africa, and then one day, William Wilberforce decided to free them. <laughs> and that was it. So this idea of the 200 years in between of everything that happened, of all the toing and froing between people, all the kind of, not just things that happened, but the ideas that were manufactured about human beings through that process develop. It wouldn't get started, but definitely developed through that process. Um, needs to be explored. Yeah, and I think it's like really important because um, like the abolitionist process is, is kind of presented as really like moral, but it's like a really dirty process if you think about it, and it was not moral at all. It's definitely complex. Yeah, but um, any other questions? 
Um, just want to say thank you for the talk. Um, really great to learn about the method of putting this database together. Um, I spent uh, way too much time on that database typing the names of people I hate. Just to really vindicated. And um, one of the things that I was struck by was the um, con continuities in terms of lots of time you type these names in, and these are people who are still rich, or families who are still rich, still powerful, um, are part of our ruling political class, uh, journalistic class, the people who run our universities. Have you come across resistance to pointing out those kinds of continuities? I mean, we've talked about ideological continuities in terms of how ideas from slavery have been really insidious in terms of shaping the experience of racism today, but have you met resistance in pointing out that some of the power structures and the economic structures uh, are still in place? I was wondering, irrespective of the compensation and the people that were compensated, I was wondering whether you were able to track and see whether any sort of modern day sort of corporations or companies, uh, whether the ownership or the founding of them directly benefited from the compensation that we did by such companies, whether they were involved in any kind of Mm -hmm. Plus, I was able to find my family farm in Jamaica, 
was still in the night, mm -hmm. still got the graves there and stuff. Yeah. So I was to validate that. So I wanted to find the And the proceeds that were made there was about six million pounds. And the investment went into southeast train, southwest and Gloucestershire Viaduct. Mm -hmm. And the guy Bernard, he was registered in Bristol. So I was able to find that out. Yeah. When it came to Hackney, I'm from Hackney. And I've done a lot of work in slavery in Hackney, teaching African awareness, but I also have a website about African history. And also, as you've done with the creativity, using oral um, history, etc., to um, bring a holistic account. And enslaved people were not passive bystanders. We resisted from the slave ship all the way through slavery. And when it came to abolitionists, it's our testimonies and narratives that enabled Wilberforce to actually get the 1807 and through the Houses of Parliament. So it's basically, as you say, about agency. Yes. Existing of the enslaved, there's plenty of them out there that have been discovered all the time because these debates have been done over time. So the final thing now, what I'm actually working on is reps. So that information is important because it teaches about the hidden history in Britain, you know, and <coughs> Britain the interlinked, and Britain didn't become, you know, um, an advanced nation by itself. Yeah. So it's important that it's definitely continued. Can I just take three more questions? Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Yep. Anyone got any more questions? No, Is there anything similar that people have done for um, slave owners in the United States or in other slave owning jurisdictions that you know Yeah, um, I think a few weeks ago, my Twitter and Instagram was on fire from a response well, a comment David Cameron made about people getting over slavery and the reparation money. So I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on, the, um, on David Cameron's comment. Um, yeah, what would your kind of um, intentions um, to, like with the database be like to, for them to, sorry, let's start that again. Um, what would you, the end results for you be with this um, information you've collected with the database? What kind of changes would you want to see? Um, would you want the British state to give reparations um, to people that were previously enslaved or do you think these changes need to be uh, more entrenched? Um, I know for the US there's a trade trade uh, sorry. No is a short answer. There's a data the question was is there a similar database for owner slave ownership in other places? The reason we, we were able to do this initially was because there was a comprehensive set of documents created by, through the bureaucracy of the British government, one of the first major bureaucratic missions of the government to compile this, and it was quite unprecedented, and it didn't really happen on that scale. There are smaller scale things, I think, in France. I don't know if it's been, if they've been, like, after the Asian Revolution, and there was kind of a level of compensation, I think, at that point, was it later? Yes, at that point. Um, but for the US, it's the, um, I can't remember the name of the database. <coughs> voyages, three voyages database. So it's more about the the ships that came across that, and that's being developed <coughs> by Professor F. Emery. I want to say, but I'll double check. So, no, it was a short answer. As for what I want to get out of it, I have lots of thoughts, but I'm here sitting. I'm sitting here as a representative of the LBS project. <laughs> so my thoughts are restricted to the use in this capacity to the use of this, doc this documentation to be used by others. The idea that this information should help in the reconfiguring of how we see Britain. And hopefully as we go forward, helping students to think differently about who they are and think differently about what being whatever it means, British means. So that's the key aim coming out of this project. And that this resource additionally will be there for anyone to use. It's free, it'll be public. Anyone can do whatever they want with it. It's there to be used. 
So that that's how it ends. Yeah, I, I think it adds the two um, together. Yeah. Um, so just like one more round of applause.